Hey everybody, welcome to Aurelius Podcast. My name is Joseph. I'm the CTO and co-founder of Aurelius and also the producer of this fine podcast. I just wanted to take a brief minute to tell you about what's going on in this episode. In this one, we've got Jeff Gothelf, writer of Lean UX. Him and Zach talk about product strategy, what Jeff's definition of product strategy is, and also who owns the product strategy. Is it the product managers or the UX designers? You'll have to stay tuned to figure that out. I also wanted to ask if you could rate us on the iTunes store. It's pretty quick to do, and this podcast is independently produced. We're a startup company. We don't have all the huge marketing dollars that a lot of other companies do. So every rating helps a ton. I would greatly appreciate that. And with that, I give you Aurelius Podcast. Welcome to Aurelius Podcast, Episode 7. I am Zach Naylor, CEO and co-founder here at Aurelius. Today's guest is Jeff Gothelf, author of Lean UX and Sense and Respond. Jeff, how are you today? I'm great, Zach. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. We are very pleased to have you as not only followers and readers of the work and information that you share. Uh, we believe in a lot of the same things that you do, so we're pretty excited for this conversation. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it as well. All right. Well, let's just dive right in. The thing that I want to ask you is, broadly speaking, and you know, from your perspective, what is your definition of product strategy? Product strategy. That's, that's actually a really good question um, because there's been so much controversy over um, this article that I wrote a couple of years back called "There's No Such Thing as UX Strategy." Um, it's frankly, it's it's amazing. This is this is my. I'll give you a pro tip right off the bat. If you ever want to get traffic to any of your content, regardless of format, declare something to not exist. Mm. And oh man, <laughs> people just start coming at you from all, all corners. They're like, what do you mean this thing doesn't exist? This is what I do for a living. How can you say it doesn't exist? Um, and nice. so that's always, the, that's a good strategy. Um, if you ever just want to drive traffic, it's good clickbait if nothing else. <laughs> all right, cool. Maybe we'll use it. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. UX is dead, right? And then watch what happens. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but really the that, that that was my point in that article is that kind of carving out product strategy, the, the, the pieces that make up a comprehensive product strategy um, is, is not helpful. It's not helpful to team unity. It's not helpful to collaboration. It's not helpful for uh, responsibilities, that type of thing. Um, and so for me, product strategy is uh, how we execute towards the vision of our company. It is the the manifestation of uh, design, content, engineering, uh, workflow. Uh, you know, a, a brand, brand promise into an experience, or or uh, an experience that hopefully helps a customer achieve something that actually matters to them, and in return helps us achieve what our vision is for our company. And so that's that's I know that's that's a vague definition, but for me that that's what it is. It's kind of it's the it's the 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 sum of of all of the components of interacting with with a service or a product. Yeah, no, I don't actually think that's super vague. I mean, I could be biased, but I share that definition in perspective, uh, and I would use my words to translate what I hear you saying, and I say it often, which is you know, product strategy is really a deep understanding of what we are trying to do as a business, a comprehensive understanding of what our customers' needs and behavior are, and a collection of informed decisions based on all that information. 
Yeah, exactly. And and look, and they're anchored in some kind of a vision, right? There, there has to be behind all of that stuff. There is somebody's point of point of view, to view, view, somebody's point of view about why we're doing the thing that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And so I want to dig into that a little bit more. What should that look like, right? Because for me, that would fall on the side of understanding what we're trying to do for a business or for our product, right? So what should that look like? How does that, how does that manifest to use your word? Right. Um, yeah. And look, I think too, the, the, the challenge here too, and I, I wanted to make sure that, that we, we talked about brand in this conversation, because I think that uh, that's also a differentiation, right? There's a reason why people, you know, when, when they look at electric cars, there is a Tesla and then there is uh I don't know, the Chevy Volt, I think, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to think of a competing electric or the Nissan Leaf, right? Or something like that. Um, there are brand promises that are made in both of those situations. And those manifest in our product strategy. So it's, 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 there, there's, you know, and, and that affects the, the choices that we make, the design decisions that we make, the levels of investment that we make in, in components of that experience. Uh, and so, and so we have to be explicit about that as a company or as a team or as an organization to, to say, look, this is our brand promise. And your brand promise doesn't have to be, we are the Apple of electric cars, right? It, it can be, we are the, you know, the, the, the cheap alternative of Apple of electric cars, <laughs> right? Sorry, I'm blanking on a, on a good, a good, a good metaphor for that, but, but you know what I'm saying? Like that we you can make that decision to say, look, we're going to play at the low end of the market. And our goal is going to be value, right? Our brand promise is value. It's not luxury. It's not necessarily sophistication. And that's okay too. But again, we have to be explicit about that because that affects choices that we make at every level of the organization. I absolutely agree. When If we have, a again, that clear understanding of who we are as a business and our product, we can make the right decisions to support that. So I would ask you, how have you brought that clarity into product strategy process in the past. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because so many questions that I get asked um, have a similar answer and, it, and it's, it's bringing the customer into the conversation. And it's amazing to me, given everything we know about product development in 2016, given all the books, all the materials, all the people from pretty much every angle from user experience from research from lean startup from you know from from business school saying put the customer at the center of your conversations how many companies still don't do this and so i think that it's it's key as you're developing your product strategy to have a very clear understanding of your target audience to understand whether or not you're you're solving a real problem for them how they're currently solving those issues for themselves what your competition is doing and what combination of all of those things that we said earlier that define product strategy will give you a competitive advantage in that space? How are you going to be better than the people already playing in that space? How are you going to solve their issues in a, uh, in a more compelling way than whoever it is that you're competing against or, or, or in, from, from whatever it is they're solving, whatever it is they're using to solve their problems today? You know, I, I, um, I, the story I tell often 
when uh, when I'm teaching uh, classes with clients or, or public classes or workshops and conferences um, about a company that I used to work for that was building this this complex software as a service system for angel investors. And um, they were trying to solve a problem that existed for angel investors, but that those angel investors were currently solving with email and Excel, which mm-hmm. are two tools that that audience lives in all day, every day, 24-7-365. And so the challenge that they were taking on was a legitimate challenge to solve, but their competition was unbeatable. It was email and Excel. And, and uh, you know, for them to think that a complex platform, online server, you know, SaaS product was going to, to defeat email and Excel was, was frankly not a good strategy to go after. Um, and so I really think it's, it's key to bring the customer into the conversation, to understand if the problem is real, to understand how they're solving it right now and what you can do to, to be better than what they're currently doing. Yeah. So it sounds to me, and you've even explicitly stated this, we know that this is the right thing to do. We know that doing customer research is essential to helping us build a product strategy that makes sense, but there's something that's holding us back. What would you say that is? There's something holding us back from doing that well. Yeah, it's arrogance. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what it is. No, I mean, it is, it is, it's, it's, there is, you know, and, and I, you know, a lot of my experiences in American companies, uh, but I do travel extensively and I do work in short stints, usually with, with companies in other countries. Uh, and, and the quality that is lacking overwhelmingly from company to company, from country to country is humility. There is this belief that if you get elevated into a leadership position, or if you found uh, an idea, or if you founded a company, and you uh, and you are the the founder, the CEO of that company, there is this this belief that you must have all the answers, that you must know exactly what we need to build, and how it needs to be implemented, and who will use it, and how much it'll generate in revenue, and so forth. And the reality is that we don't, right? We 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 we, you know, that we can't predict the future. Software, which is the medium that we work in, is complex and unpredictable. And so anybody who can say confidently that they can predict exactly what their system is going to look like, what it's going to do, how it's going to function a year from now or 18 months or three years from now is, is flat out lying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, now, to be fair, they've been asked to lie <laughs> in most <laughs> cases, right? I mean, they have. They have. I mean, not, not by, uh, you know, if, if you're the founder, then then no one asked you to do that, right? Maybe the board, maybe your board did, but um, but anybody who's in a leadership position inside a company has likely been asked to lie, or or even in a product management position has been asked has been asked to make something up by uh, the person that they report into, right? Give me the roadmap for the product for the next eighteen months, right? Tell me how much money uh, you'll need next year for your team working on this particular initiative, mm-hmm. and. We, we put our colleagues into this position where they have to make it up. Um, and, and so, and then, and then once that commitment is made, there is a stigma around coming back to the organization and saying, I was wrong. 
I didn't get the roadmap right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. We need more money. We need less money. Uh, you know that that there's a stigma around being wrong, and and that's what's missing from this is that is that humility. Um, and this this particularly gets ex- exacerbated in companies that are doing well. And, sure. and so you know, I, I work. Uh, one of my clients right now is a, is a big bank in the U.S. Uh, and they're attempting to take on a a large scale transformation that brings in uh, a more agile and more lean perspective on how they build products and services, how they really run the whole organization. At the execution level, the teams get it; they're working in a particular way. But when you start to move up the ranks into leadership and management positions, those folks are looking around and they're saying, "Why? Why do I need to change? Look, I mean, we're, we're crushing it. Right? Yeah. We're crushing our numbers. We're printing money." Um, we're beating the competition, and and so that lack of humility, and you know, there's there's, there's a uh, there's a, another component there, where they don't quite believe yet that they're in the software business, particularly companies that are not tech companies at their core, like a bank, um, and so they believe that things will stay a particular way, um, and so that's what's missing. That's that's why this this component isn't there. It's that organizations lack lack humility. Mm-hmm. And they lack a culture that allows people to uh, to be wrong and to change course more frequently than they would uh, uh, normally or traditionally. Yeah. Um, the enemy of tomorrow's success is today's success, right? It's some <laughs> right. of what you're describing there for sure. And I actually want – I want to sink my teeth into something you said because I have a personal pet peeve against it. And you mentioned product roadmaps. Now, yeah. we have – tools and processes and advice and tips and best practices and everything else now around creating a product roadmap. I think they're largely bullshit. And whether or not you've explicitly stated that, uh, much of what you've said hints to me that you would agree. So I'm curious to hear your reaction on that, number one. But then number two, what's more meaningful for us to create? What is more meaningful for us to pursue if not you know, features listed over time or in priority, which is essentially what today's product roadmap is, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So uh, look, I think that that any kind of roadmap that looks beyond three months becomes increasingly fuzzy and less accurate. I think that if you're standing up in front of your organization, your team, your management, you're saying, uh, for the next three months, we're going to work on these on these features. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair, right? I think I think a, a quarter's worth uh, a quarter's worth of outlook. I think that that that's 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 fair. Uh, you make it c- end up at the end of that quarter and say, "Look, this was not you know we 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 did about sixty percent of this. Here's why we chose not to do some other things." But but for the most part, I think looking at about three months is probably okay. I think anything beyond that becomes increasingly fuzzy and should be treated with uh, an increasing level of uncertainty and and vagueness, and so it essentially becomes worthless <laughs> as far as mm-hmm. you know. Beyond beyond that, and so the question, your question is a fair one: is is what what happens next? The most successful tactic that I've seen, both in my career uh, internally as an employee uh, in a consulting practice, and as well as in my in my current role as as kind of uh, as, as consultant and coach and trainer, is focusing on outcomes as our roadmap mm. and tasking teams with defining success as not a set of features, but a set of 
customer behaviors that we would like to influence. Yes, yes. And setting the planning cycles to be shorter so that you can say, look, for this, for, look, our goals for 2017 are we'd like to drive retention, acquisition, and net promoter score at the organizational level. That's terrific. Okay. At a high level, that's good. Um, we then break down the leading indicators of those success factors. And those leading indicators are measures of customer behaviors, they're outcomes, right? We know, like, like you remember that there was, there was a metric, um, uh, Slack published their metric, right? They said, if by a certain date, somebody has sent, I think it was like a team has sent 2000 messages. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it was, something along those lines. Um, they knew that that, that was a, that was a sticking point. That was the turning point. That, that person was going to start, was going to stick with the product. And, and start to and potentially give them money. And so all their efforts were about getting folks to send those first 2,000 messages in that first time frame, right? That is an outcome. That is a success criteria that you can then give to your teams. And essentially what you're doing is you're saying, look, I want you to focus on this p- business problem. And that team then has to figure out what tactics, what features will do that. And if a feature is not moving the needle in the right direction, then that team has the opportunity to then change course because you haven't asked them to build anything. You just said, go solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a much more realistic roadmap, right? It's more of a thematic roadmap, right? So we've got an acquisition roadmap. We have a retention roadmap. Maybe we have a, you know, a, um, uh, an activation, you know, if you're thinking about pirate metrics from, uh, Dave McClure's uh, pirate metrics, right? So uh, activation, right? We want people to come, not, not only show up, but actually start using the product. Um, and, and the teams get to figure out how to drive that behavior. Yeah. And that, be- that becomes a much more meaningful conversation that you can have on a more regular basis because you can say, okay, how are we trending towards our activation metrics? Well, here's what we've done. Here's what we've tried. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't. Um, and for the next quarter, we plan on do on, on trying these next three things. And I think that that what 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 then the team has done is it's empowered the leadership of the organization to make an evidence based funding decision. Hey, that sounds great. You guys are making good progress. Numbers are heading in the right direction. You're learning a ton. Here's another quarter's worth of funding for this initiative. Or the team could say, um, Hey, you know what? We kind of hit the number in a quarter. What do you want to do next? Right. Yeah. Or the team could come back and say, you know what? We're never going to hit this number. Right. It's just, it's unrealistic. Here's why we need to focus on, on something slightly different, a, a different tactic. Right. And that, that all of a sudden takes subjectivity out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and it gives everybody a, a much more realistic, evidence based view of what's happening. No, so this is wonderful because, first of all, you beat me to it. I was going to ask you for an example, and I think you've, you've given that and more. Uh, but the other reason I say that is there is a recurring theme based on everybody you know we've spoken with so far on our podcast and even, frankly, a theme that exists as to why our company, Aurelius, exists. And we talk about driving that subjectivity out of decision-making. You just said it yourself. And I think you've just illustrated a very important point, which is we can sit and make, you know, how we started here, we can sit and make up a product roadmap. We can make up features that we're going to build and we can even make up priority over them, right? I can do that without knowing anything about your company. I can build a product roadmap for you. 
However, if we have that tuning fork, which is an outcome or a set of outcomes that we say, are we making the right decisions that affect those outcomes? It then becomes a very different and much easier conversation to have. Absolutely. Because it's, it's fact, right? Every, everything, uh, you know, again, the, the, the thought process that I try to coach my teams through is, is this, it's that you are, you work in software. Uh, software is your medium, regardless of what, whatever it is that you make, right? If you're seeking to build a scalable business in the 21st century, you're in the software business first. So they have to buy that concept first. If I can convince them of that, then the second step is, okay, software is complex and unpredictable. You can't, it, it's continuous, it never ends, and uh, you can optimize it forever, okay? Which means that we have no, no sense of what the future holds for this beyond a certain timeline. And, and so if, if I can convince them of that, mm-hmm. then that, that burning sense of skepticism and embracing the uncertainty and starting to think about, okay, well, then how do I mitigate the risk of building something that customers actually want to use? And that is, is when we start having actual, uh, you know, meaningful conversations about how to structure projects and, and, and drive that forward. Yeah, great. And, and you know what? Like, let's get down to that level, the day-to-day I'm a product manager or I'm a designer working on this stuff and I'm making these decisions. How does it manifest itself in that world? Right. Look, everything then gets reflected by the customer behavior. Everything gets filtered through the customer behavior that we're trying to, to encourage, elicit, amplify, whatever it is, right? Um, you know, is this thing that we're working on, whether it's a feature choice, um, an implementation, a design, a color, a call to action. Um, does this help our customers be more successful? Uh, you know, in, in this task that we that we have uh, that we've created for them. Mm-hmm. And if it does, how do we know? Right? Not because we think it looks good, and not because it was a best practice on some other thing that somebody worked on. But how do we know? And and if we can if we can prove that, then then that's that's great. Then then we can actually. Um, you know, make make that objective decision to deploy this, to optimize it, to scale it out to more customers. Yeah, absolutely. So taking a bit of a left turn here, if we're thinking about designers and product people, product managers, what is the real difference there in who is making <laughs> those decisions? <laughs> oh. You want to start a war on this podcast? I'm not going to give you the easy ones, Jeff. <laughs> um, look, I, it's, it's, I just went to mind the product in London about three weeks ago, and uh, I spoke there, and, and it was it was a hot topic of conversation, and you know, the kind of the the product management guru uh, uh, Marty Kagan opened the day, you know, and I think he made a he made a compelling case for how product management is different than design. And, and, and I think, look, I, I do believe that there are uh, very different skill sets in both of those disciplines that are not necessarily shared between the two. However, if we were to draw a Venn diagram, and I'm not suggesting that we draw a Venn diagram, <laughs> but ever, but, uh, but if, we, if we were to draw one, there is overlap, particularly as a designer matures in their career. I found it to be personally true in my career. As a UX designer, 
after about 10 years of practice, the things that interested me more were not the execution of wireframes or, you know, specking out a specific workflow, but it was really thinking more strategically about um, where this product fits into the workflow of our customers. Mm-hmm. How do we optimize this experience to uh, to elicit the kind of behaviors that we're looking for? How does this line up with the vision and the you know and the strategy that our company is putting forward? Uh, and so I think that uh, that's where there are definitely some there is some overlap. But I think that until a designer hits that uh, that senior level in their career and has expressed interest in doing that type of work. The two practices are still very, very different. I think designers are thinking about um, how to how a, an experience manifests visually, uh, aesthetically, in, in an interactive context uh, through animation, through content. And I think product managers are uh, coming at this from a competitive landscape, from a, uh, a vision and strategy landscape, from a business side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how, how, you know, what are the business rules that need to play into this? Roles that were maybe traditionally held by business analysts. Um, I, I see that kind of transition more into the world of product management. How does this? You know, how do we negotiate the the, the fit of this experience with our channel partners? For example, designers don't generally think about that. You know, one of the um, one of the product managers that that Kagan highlighted in his talk at Mind the Product was the woman behind iTunes and their partnership with American Idol, which was a massively successful partnership mm-hmm. for iTunes and American Idol. Um, and and that's something that a product manager does. That's generally not the domain of a designer. Right. Right. They will think about what that looks like, how that flows, if there's a if there's a if there's a handoff between American Idol's experience and the iTunes experience, right? That's the realm of design. But actually thinking through that partnership, why that's relevant, how do we execute that, what that business relationship looks like, that's a product management function. Yeah, you know, so this is a really curious train of thought for me because I have felt more and more recently like there is an absolute clear threshold. Let's use the designer example, and you even shared your journey, where the younger you are in design, uh, or I should say the, the, the least amount of experience you have in design, the more you tend to focus on the details of the craft, the making of the thing, or the interface, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And then there seems to be almost, almost a night and day shift at some point in seniority <laughs> as a designer, where you all of a sudden say, nope, my skills are much more valuable and they start to bleed into what you would have described just now as product manager type function, right? Mm-hmm. Now, on the flip side of that, it's almost this, the inverse with product management. They, they, they want to start with this very highly strategic and vision type position. And the more and more they work as product managers with UX designers, the more they want to get into the execution and detailed creation <laughs> of that vision. Huh. What are your thoughts on that? It's interesting. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know that I, I've, ha- I've, I've seen that often. C- certainly, I've seen some. I've seen product managers transition into UX or design roles, um, and I've certainly seen UX folks transition to product management. Role. That's far more common. Just in my anecdotal experience, I've seen a lot more UX people go to PM than than the other way around. Um, but as as um, 
I think I think there's a little bit of entitlement here, frankly. Um, I think that there's a lot of folks who fancy themselves product managers early on in their career and and you know think that this is that that their job is to is to solve all the problems at once. Where I would much rather have a junior product manager and I've worked with them who are in the weeds with me as a designer, with my designers, hammering out pixel level stuff and then slowly building up their uh, their credibility, their expertise, their their perspective on a broader vision. Uh, so I feel I feel like that that trend. If you're seeing that trend, it feels to me like it's almost like they kind of missed that part of product management school <laughs> early on in their career, and so they're trying to maybe maybe catch up on it a bit now. But I, I generally uh, the, the only reason I I just haven't seen that too much uh, from the product manager side. Um, but what's interesting, though, on the UX side or on the design side in general is, is though, I think you're right. I think after a certain amount of years of working, there is that split point in a designer's career. And I think it's true for most disciplines of where they really need to make a decision about, hey, are we doing, uh, am I going to become a subject matter expert who really just really enjoys the craft? Mm-hmm. Or do I, am I going to move into more strategic things, and whether that's, whether that's product management or people management? Um, and that's that's an unfortunate but very realistic choice that most designers have to make if they're working in larger organizations. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And interestingly enough, one of the things I always find myself trying to do is encourage encourage not only uh, I, sh- I should say younger designers, but also those designers who've decided to focus on the craft. I find myself continuously encouraging them to still care very much about that strategy and vision because I think not doing so actually doesn't allow you to do that craft as well. And what I mean by that is we talked so much for so long about quote unquote UX getting a seat at the table. And then I've found a lot of designers just saying, nope, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to make. And the thing is, is that takes the thinking part out of how effective your approach to design can be. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I, I um, It depends on the size of the company, but I, I find the, I've actually seen that with engineers, which, which is, which is also kind of scary to me a little bit as well, where the engineers, I say, don't, don't you want to understand the strategy? Don't you want to understand the customers, et cetera. Um, and the, uh, you know, the engine, I've heard engineers say, no, my product manager just tells me what to do and I trust her. You know, she's done her research and uh, I'll just kind of build whatever she tells me. Um, that, uh, it, it worries me, whether it's a designer or an engineer, uh, it worries me that w- without that external context, without that broader vision and understanding of what we're trying to accomplish, uh, the execution gets very tactical. Look, and in some cases that's okay, right? If something's pretty simple or pretty clear, but generally as a philosophy, we, you know, I always, oh, I always skew towards hiring naturally curious individuals mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because that natural curiosity that simply made them better at their craft, right? They they executed better, they solved problems more successfully, more creatively. It, it, they were more innovative, they were more collaborative, and uh, and to me, that's a more successful team um, and a practitioner. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'll quote, you know, someone we both know and Jared Spool, where he often shares the the thought, does great designers fall in love with the problem, not the solution? And right. I think that's absolutely true for engineers as well. And my experience 
mimics yours where the most effective teams, the best products are people who really care about solving that problem. And I want to preface this with saying, I don't, I don't have any problem with somebody who goes, Hey, listen, I don't want to build a strategy. I just want to engineer, or I just want to design. I think that's great. Be that person, be better than anybody else at doing that, but still care about the vision, still care about the problem we're solving. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I you know, one of my perennial examples and one of the, my favorite engineers that I worked with uh, several times, actually, um, got, was lucky enough to uh, meet him at one company and then hire him for other companies that I've worked in before. Um, you know, just a naturally curious engineer, really good at writing code, naturally curious. And he would do things like we were building a, a, a service once for small business owners. And he lived in, uh, in Jersey City and he'd commute to New York City every day. And on his commute, he'd walk past small businesses delis, dry cleaners, nail salons, that type of thing. And he would pop in on his way in or on his way home from work and just ask them some questions that were related to the work that he was doing that day. And he'd get, you know, a little bit of insight, a little bit of, of perspective on the people that ultimately would, uh, who, who were ultimately the target audience for this, the system that we were building, right? That's the kind of individual that I want to work with. And that's the kind of curiosity that, that I promote with the teams that I work with as well. That's great. I think it's, I think it's a great philosophy for the entire team to adopt. Ultimately, care about the problem you're solving and care enough to help us make sure we're solving the right problems. Yep. Agreed. Awesome. Well, Jeff, this has been an absolutely awesome conversation. I know I very much enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you did, and I hope everybody listening did as well. I would ask you, is there anything you would like to share uh, with those people listening um, before we wrap up today? Sure, Zach. Thanks. And, and this was, this was a, a blast for me as well. Um, yeah, a couple things to share. So um, I've got uh, the second edition of, of the Lean UX book. Josh Seiden and I just finished and it just published. So it's actually uh, a real book. It's shipping. I actually have a few copies of it here in my home office. Uh, and so that's great. And we, and it's, it's, a, it's a little, it's put on some weight, slightly less <laughs> lean than it's, uh, it's first edition. Um, but it's got a, a set of new case studies and a lot of kind of modernized thinking around agile design sprints, that type of thing. And so that's one thing. That, so that's the second edition of Lean UX. And then uh, perhaps even more exciting for Josh Sodden and myself, again, we, we, we work well together, so we continue to write books together. Um, uh, we wrote a business book called Sense and Respond, which is available for pre-order now on Amazon. And that's coming out next. Uh, it's, it's shipping on February 7th of 2017, so not too far in the future, um, on Harvard Business Press. And the story behind that, uh, really quick, is that uh, all the people who read Lean UX gave us feedback. Not everybody, but a lot of people gave us feedback on Lean UX over the years. And one of the most common threads of that feedback was, we love Lean UX. We want to work this way. It's terrific. My boss won't let me work this way. My company won't let me work this way. And so what Josh and I have done is we've written a book for the leadership of your organization to convince them of exactly what I've been talking about during this podcast, which is uh, you're in the software business, managing software businesses is different Here's how, here's why, and your teams already want to work this way. So once you start to implement this, you can start to see some, you know, optimized productivity, efficiency, and success. And so that's what that book is about. Um, uh, and if you, there's more more about it on Amazon, but 
I highly recommend that you pre-order it. It makes us look really good to the publisher. Uh, and, uh, and I'm really excited about, about it coming out. It's, um, uh, you know, having read it again recently after putting it down for a couple of months after submitting the manuscript, I'm really excited by it. Lots of case studies, lots of, of points of view from a variety of different industries. And so uh, thrilled uh, to have that be go live early next year. Fantastic. Well, those all sound like great reads to me, and we'll be sure to include links to those in the episode page whenever we publish this. So Jeff Gothelf, thank you so much for joining us today, and we will see you next time. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Aurelius Podcast, talking about product strategy and design strategy. We are the first platform of its kind to help you solve the right problems for your customers and your business and build products and services that truly matter. You can check us out at AureliusLab.com. That is www.A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. You can check us out on Twitter at AureliusLab and Instagram, AureliusLab. We'll see you next time.